Hello friends, I'm Gracelyn Keller and you're listening to Grace is on the Case. In this episode, we will be diving into the life of one of the most notorious mob bosses in America, James Joseph Bulger Jr., or as most people know him, Whitey Bulger. Bulger ran the city of Boston for decades as the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, an eluded capture for years, even making it up to the number one spot on the FBI's most wanted list. I'll also be sitting down with Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, the authors of Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss, to learn more about this elusive man's life. So without further ado, let's get into it. So like I said in the intro, Bulger is one of the most famous mob bosses in American history. I'm originally from Chicago and I grew up hearing lore about Al Capone, another infamous gangster, and I liken Bulger's presence in Boston to the presence of Al Capone in Chicago. His time at the helm of the Winter Hill Gang spanned decades, and he spent 16 years on the run before his capture. Over the span of his criminal career, he did it all narcotics distribution, racketeering, extortion, money laundering, conspiracy of many sorts, and even murder. But to understand how one person could become so powerful and commanding of Boston's criminal underworld, commit 19 murders, and evade authorities for as long as he did, I need to take you back to the beginning of Bulger's early life and his very first crimes. My sources for this episode include Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge's book, Hunting Whitey, the Wikipedia pages for Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang, a USA Today article about Bulger's murder victims, and Kevin Weeks's memoir, Brutal, The Untold Story of My Life Inside Whitey Bulger's Irish Mob. You can find all of these sources on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com. So Bulger was born in 1929 in Everett, Massachusetts to James Joseph Bulger Sr., an immigrant from Newfoundland, Canada, and Jane Veronica Jean McCarthy, a first-generation Irish immigrant. The family fell into poverty after Bulger Sr. lost his arm in an industrial accident, and they moved to a housing project neighborhood in South Boston in 1938. While Bulger's two younger siblings became excellent students, Bulger himself could not help but be drawn into the street life in South Boston. Bulger quickly developed a reputation on the streets as a thief. He was known as a street fighter and was extremely loyal to South Boston. In 1943, 14-year-old Bulger received his first criminal charge, which was larceny, after joining the Shamrocks, which was a street gang. He served time in a juvenile center for his crime, which is where he acquired the nickname Whitey from local police in reference to his white blonde hair. He was released in April of 1948, and then he joined the Air Force, but he ended up spending time in military prison for multiple assaults. He was also arrested by the Air Force in 1950 for going absent without leave, but despite this, he ended up receiving an honorable discharge and returned to Massachusetts. Bulger served his very first stint in federal prison in 1956 in Atlanta after being convicted for armed robbery and truck hijacking. It was later recounted that he had told people while serving in Atlanta he had been part of the MK Ultra program, which if you don't know what that is, it's the government program that sought to do research on possible mind control drugs for the CIA. It's very, very controversial to this day and it involved using human subjects as guinea pigs, basically dosing them with LSD and lots of other different substances. 
Boulder said he had been given a reduced sentence for volunteering to participate and then later alleged that he had been deceived when asked to volunteer and described the entire ordeal as nightmarish, taking him to the depths of insanity. Yikes. Boulder was also briefly transferred to Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in California in 1959, which was on an island off the coast of San Francisco. The prison itself was made famous when three inmates managed to escape in 1962 while Bulger was there. Um, this is kind of a big mystery in American folklore to this day because the men who escaped made it out into the ocean but were never found. And that's a tangent, so getting back to Bulger, in 1963, he was moved again to Kansas and then to Pennsylvania, and he was finally released on parole in 1965. Bulger briefly tried to straighten his life out after this, and he worked as a janitor and a construction worker, but he quickly fell back into crime when he began working as a bookmaker and a loan shark for South Boston mobster Donald Killeen. The Killeens were a gang that had dominated South Boston for over 20 years at this point, so this was kind of a big deal that he joined forces with Donald Killeen, and this is seen as the catalyst of his criminal career within the gang world. So a quick side note for those that don't know, a bookmaker is the person who handles the money during a rigged sports bet. So rigging a sports bet basically means you're going to bet on a sporting game and then you pay the person to throw the game or purposefully lose in whatever bet you're betting on. And that is how you rig a sports bet. And so the bookmaker is the person that handles the exchange of money to the person who's going to throw the game and then vice versa. And then a loan shark is someone who lends money to borrowers at an extremely high interest rate with very strict terms on how to pay it back. They usually target people who they know are unable to get money from like an actual bank. And both of these things are obviously illegal. And loan sharking is actually extremely dangerous for the borrower because they will often get a really violent reaction from the loan shark if they are unable to pay their loan back by the time that the loan shark wants it. So all around bad situation. So after getting involved with Donald Killeen, Bulger became tangled up in a gang war between the Killeens and the Mullins, another gang from the area. It was in this gang war that Bulger committed his first murder. His target was Paul McGongle, a member of the Mullins. However, he shot Paul's brother Donald in a case of mistaken identity. Assuming Bulger's mentor Billy O'Sullivan from the Killeen gang was the culprit of this killing, Paul McGongle ambushed O'Sullivan and killed him. Realizing that Bulger was probably next in this gang war and killing war, he decided to hatch a plan. Bulger approached Howie Winter, the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, which was another Boston gang, a lot of gangs going on at this time, and proposed that he could end the war by killing Donald Killeen, the leader at the time of the Killeen Gang, and Bulger's boss. Shortly after the secret meeting, Donald Killeen was gunned down outside his home on May 12, 1972. Members of the Mullen gang dispute that Bulger was actually the culprit of this, and they said it was their own forces, but Bulger claimed that it was him. Quickly thereafter, Bulger and the remaining Killeens fled Boston for their safety from the Mullins. Howie Winter, wanting to end the chaos, volunteered to mediate a sit-down between the two gangs, and the sit-down was eventually organized by the Mullins. The Mullins were represented by Patrick Nee and Tommy King, and the Killeens were represented by Bulger. By the end of this meeting, all three gangs had joined forces under the Winter Hill Gang, and Howie Winter was at the helm. 
So this is kind of a big move. There were three separate gangs running around and after this war and subsequent mediation, now all three gangs and all of the people involved in those three gangs are now one big gang. It's kind of like a monopoly of gangs and territory in South Boston. So this made the Winter Hill Gang extremely powerful. This merger left Bulger and the remaining Mullins in almost complete control of South Boston's organized crime. And so they began shaking down loan sharks and bookmakers in the area. And Bulger is even said to have encouraged Howie Winter to kill anyone that stepped out of line. In 1979, Winter and most of his inner circle were indicted on the charge of fixing horse races. Bulger was left out of this indictment and with Winter out of the way, he ended up stepping in as leader of the Winter Hill Gang with associate Stefan Flemmy. So while he was rising to power through the Winter Hill Gang, Bulger became an informant for the FBI in 1974. He began feeding them information about the Patriarchara family in exchange for a blind eye being turned to the Winter Hill Gang. The relationship proved to be very corrupt and Bulger basically had the Boston division of the FBI in his back pocket. Special Agent John Cannoli was the first agent in charge of Bulger, and they ended up forging a relationship where Cannoli would actually protect Bulger, feed him information to help him stay ahead of authorities, and other organized crime in Boston. Even after Cannoli retired, he continued to meet with Bulger regularly and give him information that he had learned from his friends who were still working in the FBI. So pretty bad news for the FBI. Agent John Morris took over Boston's Organized Crime Task Force in 1977 and proved to be just as corrupt, often aiding Cannoli in feeding Bulger information. Morris at one point even accepted gifts from Bulger, including plane tickets for his girlfriend to come visit him at an FBI training facility. And even after Morris was transferred from this task force to the drug task force, he was still helping Cannoli and Bulger. So obviously this is very problematic and a huge reason why Bulger was able to stay actively committing crimes while working with the FBI. The corrupt relationship is also another reason why he was able to get away with these crimes for as long as he did, which included drug trafficking, money laundering, racketeering, and murder. This corruption finally came to light in 1995 and caused a lot of embarrassment for the FBI, as well as led to the conviction of Cannoli in 2002. So like I said earlier, most of the top members of the Winter Hill Gang were indicted on charges surrounding their fixing of horse races, leaving Bulger and his associate Stefan Flemmy in charge of the gang. Bulger and Flemmy actually were supposed to be included in this indictment, but Cannoli and Morris were able to persuade the prosecutor to drop the charges against them. So as you can see, this is just one instance of the corrupt relationship at work. And honestly, this probably provided Bulger many instances of being able to be saved from having to go to jail and kept him doing his crimes on the streets, which is pretty bad. So if this corruption had not ensued, Bulger and Flemmy were going to be indicted as planned with their associates and the Winter Hill game probably would have just collapsed with all of its top members in prison. And it would have stopped a lot of crimes from occurring and honestly saved a lot of lives. But unfortunately, that is not how things went. As we know, Bulger and Flemmy were left out of the indictment and this left them in the lead of the gang. Bulger and Flemmy began using their status as informants to eliminate their competition in organized crime in Boston, specifically choosing to feed information to the FBI on people or groups they saw as threats to their gang. Because they were able to get literally whoever they wanted out of the way by ratting them to law enforcement, 
This allowed the Winter Hill Gang to be the sole player for organized crime in Boston moving into the 1980s. So Boulder's non-lethal crimes included drug trafficking, arms trafficking, extortion, racketeering, and truck hijacking throughout his career as a criminal. And the peak years for his activities with these are considered to be the 80s, which, as we know, was facilitated by him getting everyone who he saw as competition locked up in the late 70s and early 80s. So this actually began in the early 80s when he, Flemmy, and another gang member, Kevin Weeks, would tell drug dealers that they'd been offered a large amount of money to kill them and then would demand that the dealer pay them a large sum of money in exchange for the gang not killing them. This ended up being very profitable, but the greedy get greedier and soon this was not enough for them. Most of the drug trafficking at the time was controlled by mobster John Shea and after some consideration, Boulder decided to begin extorting a cut of the weekly profits Shea was making off of the dealers that he controlled. Boulder enforced strict rules for these dealers that he allowed to operate in his territory, including forbidding sales to children and the sale of heavy hitting drugs like PCP. This could kind of be considered noble, but as you'll learn through the rest of this episode, this dude is not a good dude, so don't even go there. Anyway, though, dealers who refused to abide by these rules were driven out of the territory, often violently. In 1990, Shea and his network of dealers were arrested in the conclusion of a DEA, Boston PD, and Massachusetts State PD investigation. While in prison, Shea refused to admit that he had been paid protection money to Bulger, which in turn saved Bulger from another stint in prison himself. Shea actually would get in fights defending Bulger's honor with inmates who accused Bulger of being a rat or a snitch, since a lot of people knew that he was an FBI informant. Bulger was finally linked to the drug trafficking operation in 1999 after the cooperation of Kevin Weeks with law enforcement. Weeks admitted to the protection payments implicating himself, Bulger, and Flemmy. These charges were added to the already long list of crimes Bulger was wanted for. His involvement in arms dealing also began in the early 80s when sympathy for the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or IRA, was high in Boston. At the time, Northern Ireland was in the midst of an armed struggle with the British who had taken up a presence in the country, and there was a huge push in South Boston to raise money and weapons to smuggle to the IRA. Bulger donated large amounts of money and shipped weapons and explosives to the IRA in the early 80s, even donating some of his own weapons to the cause. These weapons were going to be shipped overseas and exchanged in a rendezvous with the IRA ship off the coast of Ireland. Unbeknownst to Bulger, his crew, or the IRA, the man who actually set up this exchange was an Irish police informant posing as a member of the resistance. He helped the police catch the IRA at the exchange point and took down the entire operation, arresting head crew member John McIntree on board, who in turn implicated Bulger in the trafficking operation. After his betrayal, Bulger met McIntree in Boston, hoping to get him to flee the country and cut ties with his friends and family. But when McIntree couldn't prove himself trustworthy enough to do so, Bulger murdered him and had Flemmy and Weeks dispose of the body. Bulger was also responsible for a number of murders during his time in the gang world. His first murder, which I discussed earlier, took place in 1972 during the war between the Mullins and the Killeens. It was able to be proven that after Bulger's apprehension, he was linked to three other murders after Paul McGongle throughout the 70s. But there are seven murders that took place during the 70s alone where authorities can't prove or disprove his involvement, but they're highly suspicious. 
The killing spree continued into the 80s where Bolger was proven to have committed another seven murders and is suspected of being involved in at least one more. The total count of murders Bolger was eventually indicted in was 11. His victims included rival gang members, associates who stepped out of line, people who he wanted to rob, and honestly, innocent citizens who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The names of his victims are Paul McGungle, Edward Connors, Thomas King, Richard Castucci, Roger Wheeler, Brian Holloran, Michael Donahue, John Callahan, Arthur Bucky Barrett, John McIntry, and Jebra Hussey. So Bulger's reign of terror over Boston and the surrounding communities continued for over two decades, but in April 1994, it was nearing an end, at least in Boston. A task force composed of the state police, Boston police, and the DEA launched an investigation into Bulger's illegal gambling operations. The FBI, who was considered completely compromised at this time since Bulger had so many friends on the inside, was not given notice of this investigation. The investigation was able to identify and convince a group of bookmakers who worked under Bulger to testify to having paid Bulger protection money, and a federal case began being built against him. Bulger and his associates knew that their life of crime like, wasn't a sustainable thing from the beginning, and eventually they would have to run. According to testimony, they had each set up their own alternate identities, complete with IDs, passports, and entirely new personas that they had been building for years. Bulger specifically had safety deposit box at locations all across America and Europe containing cash, IDs, passports, and the like, prepared in case he ever had to access them. These safety deposit boxes would actually prove useful in December of 1994 when Cannoli of the FBI caught wind of the secret investigation being conducted by the DEA and state and Boston police. After receiving this information, Bulger fled Boston on December 23, 1994 with his common law wife, Teresa Stanley. Bulger's life as a fugitive then began. From Boston, he headed to Selden, New York for Christmas before making his way to New Orleans for New Year's. On January 5th, Bulger prepared to go back to Boston thinking that the information had just been a false alarm since nothing had happened to any of his associates since he had fled. Just that night though, Flemmy was arrested by the DEA and Bulger remained in New Orleans realizing that the law was also after him. Bulger and Stanley then spent the next three weeks traveling between New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco until Stanley decided she would like to return home to her children. The two then went to Clearwater, Florida, where Bulger retrieved one of his safety deposit box identities and a money stash. They drove to Boston together where Bulger dropped Stanley off in a parking lot before meeting with Kevin Weeks to pick up Katherine Gregg, Bulger's girlfriend. Kind of a side note, Bulger had a lot of girlfriends and then he had this common law wife. Didn't really get into it on this episode because I didn't think that it was really relevant to his criminal life, but yeah, he was kind of a womanizer. Anyway though, at this time, Weeks had stepped into the head of the Winter Hill Gang in Bulger's place since Bulger had fled and Bulger allegedly told Weeks to pin anything else that came up onto him so Weeks could avoid prison. After the three shared a meal, Bulger and Greg left to go on the run together. Bulger and Weeks actually met one final time in November of 1995 in New York City, where Bulger made the decision that he would never return to South Boston for fear of being captured. This was the last time that Weeks would ever see Bulger because he was arrested in November of 1999 
where he ended up cutting a deal with federal prosecutors and gave up the location of almost every body attached to Bulger and almost all of Bulger's money. This left Bulger and Greg as the sole members of the Winter Hill Gang's inner circle still on the run. The first confirmed sighting of Bulger didn't happen until 2002 in London, although there were quite a few unconfirmed sightings elsewhere. Agents had been sent to Uruguay, Normandy, France, and Tarmonia, Sicily to investigate leads that turned out to be false. After many dead ends, the FBI changed their strategy, launching an extensive national media campaign focusing on Catherine Gregg rather than Bulger. The information the FBI put out made it sound like Gregg was being held against her will in hopes that the public would possibly be sympathetic and call in with tips, and authorities knew if they found Gregg, they'd find Bulger. So Bulger was finally taken down in Santa Monica, California on June 22, 2011 at 81 years old. Law enforcement received a tip from a woman in Iceland that Bulger was staying in an apartment in Santa Monica. Little bit weird, but from what I understand, this woman also had a residence in Santa Monica, like within the same complex as Bulger, so that's how she knew. Agents were able to lure Bulger out of his apartment and arrest him without incident. Authorities then entered the apartment and apprehended Greg. Bulger spent a total of 16 years on the run, 12 of which were while his name was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. He topped that list in the number one spot after the assassination of Osama bin Laden. He had also been featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted 16 times. Authorities credited the extensive national media campaign launched by the FBI for his eventual capture. Bulger's charges when he was taken down included murder, conspiracy to commit murder, extortion, narcotics distribution, and money laundering. Law enforcement found 30 firearms, multiple fake IDs, and over $80,000 in cash inside Bulger and Greg's apartment. Both of them were extradited back to Boston. Immediately upon arrival, Bulger began spilling to authorities. At his arraignment in federal court on July 6, 2011, Bulger pled not guilty to 48 separate charges, including 19 counts of murder. Greg, on the other hand, had initially only been arrested for harboring a fugitive. She was denied bail, however, and pleaded guilty to that harboring a fugitive charge, as well as identity fraud and conspiracy to commit identity fraud in 2012. She was sentenced to eight years in prison, and then shortly after in 2015, was actually implicated on another charge of criminal contempt, um, which she was found guilty for. Greg was released from prison on July 23rd, 2020, so very, very recently, and she now resides in South Boston with her sister. Bulger, like Greg, was also made to wait in prison for his trial, although that was not unexpected at all, and the trial began on June 12th, 2013. The trial was for 32 counts of racketeering and firearms possession, and the jury began deliberations on August 6th, returning with a conviction for 31 of the 32 racketeering counts on August 12th. In part with these charges, the jury also convicted Bulger of the murders of 11 of his 19 alleged victims as well. On November 14th, 2013, Bulger was sentenced to two life terms in prison plus five years. He was also made to forfeit $25.2 million and pay $19.5 million in restitution money. He was also indicted in Florida and Oklahoma after his sentencing in Boston for two additional murders. 
Bolger was moved around a lot as an inmate, and uh, I think a lot of people would describe him as a bad prisoner. He complained a lot. He wasn't the greatest or best behaved. And this movement is actually what led to his death in prison. By 2018, he was in bad health and confined to a wheelchair. And on October 29th, he was transferred to a federal prison in Hazleton, West Virginia. By 8.20 a.m. the next morning, less than 12 hours after his arrival, Boulder was found dead in his wheelchair inside his cell. He had been beaten to death by fellow inmates who used padlocks wrapped in socks and a shiv. His body was described as unrecognizable after the beating. Boston residents and family members of his victims were honestly relieved after his death, knowing his reign of terror over Boston was finally over. So that was the story of Whitey Bulger from the very beginning of his criminal career all the way to his capture, spanning decades, and now to further examine this man's incredibly complex, dangerous, and destructive life, I'm sitting down with Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, authors of Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. In addition to writing this book, they also served as reporters in the Boston area and drew on their journalistic experience to tell a complex story that has gone almost completely untold in its entirety. Dave and Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Grace. So could you guys both take a moment and introduce yourself real quick for our listeners? Sure, I'll start. I'm uh, Casey Sherman, uh, and this is my 13th book, Hunting Whitey. I've been a, a you know a, an award-winning journalist in the Boston and, and national uh, platforms for uh, well over you know 25 years. Uh, I wrote a book called The Finest Hours, which became a big Disney movie in 2016. And Dave and I wrote uh, a book called Boston Strong, which was adapted into the feature film Patriots Day with Mark Wahlberg. So. Uh, you know, we've uh, uh, been around for a long time, and uh, and this was the kind of the white whale of all crime stories for us to tackle. And uh, hi, I'm Dave Wedge. I am uh, an author. I co-wrote uh, Hunting Whitey with Casey Sherman, and uh, I have a journalism background. I was a reporter at the Boston Herald for 14 years. I've been a news reporter for 20 years. Um, I've written for a variety of publications. Uh, including Vice and Esquire and Newsweek. I'm real excited about this new book. It's uh, my fourth book with Casey, and um, we, uh, we're excited to talk to you about it. Well, I'm just going to jump right into questions here. So as we know, Bulger evaded authorities for 16 years, despite being on the FBI's most wanted list. And so I guess the question at the forefront of all of this is, how did he evade the FBI and literally all authorities for that long? Well, it's a great question, Grace, and I think it was uh, proper planning. Uh, Whitey Bulger was incredibly methodical, and he had been planning his escape for several years, if not several decades. That's what made him and allowed him to evade law enforcement for 16 years. He also had help within the FBI, at least in the early days of the manhunt for him. So he was able to glean information from federal authorities that would allow him to stay one step ahead of those who, who were pursuing him. But ultimately, Bulger was a crafty gangster, somebody that planned everything out way ahead of time. So that's what kind of allowed him to evade capture for as long as, as he did. It blew my mind because I knew 
this kind of the story of him. But when I sat down and read your book, I had no idea like he was on the run for that long and all the different places that he had crisscrossed to to stay on the run. So it was just very mind blowing to me. In my mind, he was like captured a really long time ago. I had no idea that he was captured just in 2011. That just seems like so um, not that long ago, I guess. Yeah, people kind of, you know, forgot about him. You know, he was, he was um, America's number one most wanted uh, man for, for a couple of years. And, and he was number two before that, only to Osama bin Laden. And uh, once bin Laden was killed, Whitey Bulger became the most wanted criminal in America. And, you know, he really just traveled the country with his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, hiding in plain sight. And um, it's a pretty fascinating story about how the FBI was able to ultimately crack the case. Yeah, 100%. So he's actually regarded as one of the most infamous criminals in American history, like you were saying. Um, but there are like also a lot of other mob bosses and famous criminals. So what do you think made him in specific so infamous? Well, I think the differentiator between Whitey Bulger and Al Capone and Meyer Lansky, again, is Bulger's craftiness. You know, quite frankly, I think he was the smartest crime boss uh, that ever lived. And I, and I hate to give him that acc accolade because Bulger was a killer of women and a real bad guy, but he was uh, incredibly smart. He uh, was also very manipulative and he could manipulate uh, members of his own gang, members of his own community. You know, that's a story that I think, you know, really thrust Whitey Bulger onto the national and international stage. And then when he went on the run for 16 years, he became like a ghost, like this myth and, you know, what Dave and I tried to do in this book was really try to deconstruct the myth around Whitey Bulger. And uh, we feel that we've been able to do that. So Bulger also had a really corrupt relationship with the FBI as an informant. Um, and that honestly probably helped him stay one step ahead of the authorities for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship that he had? Sure. So, you know, Whitey Bulger grew up in South Boston and... Um, another person who grew up not far from him is a guy named John Connolly. And John Connolly ended up becoming an FBI agent. And he was actually friends with Whitey Bulger's younger brother, Billy, who went on to become one of the most powerful politicians in Massachusetts as the president of the state Senate and later the president of the University of Massachusetts. So when uh, John Connolly got onto the FBI, he talked with, with uh, Whitey Bulger's brother and, um, and basically, you know, Billy said, you know, keep an eye out for my brother. And John Connolly did that, but he not only did he look out for Whitey Bulger, but he actually became his criminal partner. He fed him information. He made Whitey a prized informant, one of the top informants against organized crime in uh, New England, certainly. And um, Bulger funneled endless information about his criminal rivals to John Connolly over the years including about the Italian Mafia. A lot of the information that Bulger gave to the FBI about the uh, Angelo family in the north end of Boston ended up in, in, in uh, becoming part of these indictments where the, the Boston mob was really taken down. But John Connolly took it a step farther. You know, he spent dinners with Bulger. A lot of people described him as a wannabe gangster. And um, Bulger uh, bribed him, paid him off. And there were other uh, other um, agents in the office that were bribed and paid off as well, as well as uh, folks in the state police. So Bulger really had the law enforcement community in Boston paid and, um, and on his, on his uh, side. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, it's really, it was a cor very corrupt era in uh, law enforcement in Boston. And it, it ultimately plays into why Bulger was caught. 
Definitely. So once he goes on the run, he crisscrossed the country, like I kind of mentioned earlier, and he was even had a confirmed spotting in London in 2002. But the authorities came actually really close to him. I think you talk about this in your book, off the coast of Louisiana, capturing him. But then obviously he went uncaptured. So what do you think went wrong there in that near miss? Well, you know, we, we detail that near miss uh, 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 very well in the book uh, because we got embedded with the FBI team that eventually captured Whitey Bulger. So we're talking about unprecedented access uh, to the entire investigation of Whitey Bulger. There was an agent that was uh, hot on Whitey Bulger's trail when Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg escaped to the bayou right off of uh, Louisiana. Um, you know, back in uh, the late 1990s. And this FBI agent was able to uh, uh, retrieve one of Whitey Bulger's getaway cars, uh, tear the whole thing apart, and find one receipt. And that receipt was uh, to a Walmart in um, uh, Galliano, Louisiana. So he and his partner drove all the way down to the bayou and ultimately ended up uh, at a place called Grand Isle, which is a very small island. And that's where Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg, under the pseudonyms Tom and Helen Baxter, uh, befriended a family that was, you know, um, not down on its luck, but a rural family that didn't have a lot of money. And Bulger and Catherine showered this family with gifts, showered this family with love, and um, almost got caught doing it. Uh, and again, Bulger was, uh, was able to slip through the noose uh, with regard to that potential capture because of one of Bulger's girlfriends back in the Boston area was able to um, get word to Bulger's surrogates that the FBI was looking for him, that the FBI had his identification as Tom Baxter. So Bulger was able to slip away in the darkness of night before the FBI was able to uh, you know, put the stranglehold on he and Catherine. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I'm sure that after chasing someone for as long as they did, it would be very frustrating to come that close. So Bulger actually traveled a lot during his time on the run. As you said, he hid in plain sight. How do you think that he was still able to evade capture, even though he was kind of all over the place and not really in hiding, so to say? So uh, Bulger was a uh, student of crime, but he was also a student of how to be a fugitive. And um, when he was ultimately captured in, in uh, 2011 in Santa Monica, they not only found uh, uh, several fake identi identifications, uh, weapons and cash, they also found books on how to be a fugitive and how to create false identities. So he really um, took it seriously and he studied the tactics that had worked for others in the past, just as he did with, with crime. And um, he really was a master at manipulating people and he was able to you know get people to uh get him fake ids and, and, and you know his biggest strength was really cash you know he paid with cash for everything everywhere he went so obviously you know cash is not traceable like an atm card or, or debit card and uh he also took great pains to wash that money so that you know if the fbi was close to him and they found some money that could be traced to him it wouldn't come back to him. So he would go to casinos and, uh, and really just wash his money is what he was doing. So, and, and, you know, Catherine Gregg provided great cover for him. You know, they, they traveled around the country as a retired couple. And because she was with him, you know, she kind of acted as a buffer between him and anyone that, that might have gotten suspicious. You know, she was kindly and, and, and a gentle woman. And she would talk about pets and dogs and cats and, 
and and kind of lower suspicions about you know whether or not Whitey was this shady guy. So it was a pretty masterful plan that he had that worked for 16 years. So like you said, he was taken down in California in 2011 um, with his longtime girlfriend. Can you talk a little bit about the process of the capture and then his long extradition back to Massachusetts? Sure. Uh, you know, and, and kind of one episode that uh, we uh, uh, didn't mention here is, uh, you know, the sighting of Whitey Bulger in San Diego in 2006. You want to talk about a life imitating art, uh, you know, piece of history. Bulger uh, was certainly willing to gamble with his own freedom uh, in order to watch uh, a fictionalized version of himself on the big screen. Now, when The Departed, starring Jack Nicholson, came out in 2006, that was, again, a fictionalized version of Whitey Bulger's life of crime. And Bulger was so excited to see it that he went to a theater in San Diego to watch it. What he didn't know was that a uh, police officer was four rows behind him. And that police officer made Whitey Bulger, but Whitey Bulger was armed during that screening, and that police officer was unarmed. So the police officer had to go back uh, to his uh, uh, precinct, basically, get his weapon, and try to uh, uh, track, track down Whitey Bulger uh, thereafter, and, and couldn't do that. So you had these near sightings, these near misses, and ultimately, um, the entire paradigm of the Bulger case was changed in 2008 when uh, a woman, Noreen Gleason, an FBI agent uh, from New York City, was elevated in her position. She joins the Boston office of the FBI as the number two agent in charge. And she asks her boss, do you really want to find Whitey Bulger or is this all just lip service? And the boss said, no, we really want to find him. So at that moment, she said, okay, the gloves are off. She began to recruit uh, fugitive hunters from around the country to join this fight. She also said, you know, we're looking for the wrong person here. For well over a decade, we've been looking for an elderly white man in a baseball cap and sunglasses. Now, you can walk down any crowded street on any given day, and you're going to find maybe five of people fitting that description. What we should be doing, she said, is look for the girlfriend. If we can find the girlfriend, we'll find Whitey Bulger. But there were never any real strong surveillance images of Catherine Gregg. They were all very grainy and taken from a distance away. But the FBI uh, understood and learned that Catherine Gregg had had several um, plastic surgery procedures in the Boston area, and they began to hunt through all of these plastic surgery offices until they landed on the one that performed those procedures on Catherine Gregg. And uh, with that, they had a treasure trove of uh, photographs of Catherine, up-close photographs that they could use for their benefit. And then the FBI did something that they'd never done before. They created their own public safety uh, and service announcement with regard to Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg. So instead of going to America's Most Wanted uh, and giving their information out, they did their own thing. They cut a, you know, a minute-long PSA uh, focusing on Catherine Gregg and letting the audience believe at least that Catherine was in danger for her life by going on the lamb with a cold-blooded killer, a man that had killed at least two women during his career. That's a very smart move, actually, because I feel like if I saw a PSA wanting a criminal, I would think, oh, I've never seen that guy before. But 
if I saw a PSA of a woman who may be in danger, I think I might keep my eyes peeled a little more and look a little closer to see if I could help someone because the rhetoric of those two things are very different. So obviously the trial and extradition and all of those things surrounding this case was very high profile. Do you think that the media craze surrounding this trial affected the outcome at all? No, I, I don't. I mean, this was a spectacular trial for sure. It's actually a trial that no one ever thought would happen because I, I think, you know, someone who covered the Bulger case for, you know, off and on over the years, over two decades, I certainly never thought that we'd see Whitey Bulger brought to justice. It was shocking when he was caught. It was even more shocking to see him actually you know, walked in a court as an old man and, um, you know, right down the street from, you know, actually right in the neighborhood where he committed some of his actual murders. So when the trial happened, it was, it was high theater for Boston for sure. But I think ultimately the evidence against him was just so overwhelming. You know, there was a parade of, of witnesses and fellow criminals that committed murders at his behest and right alongside him, uh, there was, you know, several witnesses who talked about him, you know, helping them uh, dispose of bodies and dig up bodies and, you know, sell drugs and, and coordinate uh, weapons trafficking operations and, and, and bookmaking, you know, shaking down bookmakers, extorting people, using threats. So the prosecutors uh, from the Department of Justice really did an incredible job on the case. It was a very complex case, took, uh, took a couple of months. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I think that's regrettable about it, I, I, as a journalist, I always believe that the, the rule against cameras in the courtrooms and federal courthouses is, uh, is unconstitutional. I think it's wrong. And certainly in this case, I think that uh, the world deserved to be able to watch that trial, especially the, the hundreds of uh, victims of Bulger's reign of terror deserved to be able to watch that trial. And they weren't because it was in a federal courthouse. So that, that's a shame. All right, so last question I have. So as we know, Bulger was brutally murdered in prison in 2018 by an inmate less than 24 hours after his transfer to that prison. Can you talk about this killing and his killer and maybe the possible motive behind this murder? Sure. He was sent to a prison uh, in Hazleton, West Virginia, which is nicknamed Misery Mountain. And the fact that it's nicknamed Misery Mountain must tell you something because it is uh, the most violent prison uh, in the federal uh, prison system. Now, Bulger had uh, uh, spent time in three prisons, and we chronicle that through the book race. You know, we were really lucky because we uh, had access to 70 letters that Whitey Bulger wrote in his own hand uh, uh, with regard to the time he spent on the run, with regard to his days in prison. You know, Bulger is a, a one of those holdover gangsters from the you know, mid 20th century, Bulger actually spent time in Alcatraz. And he always looked at Alcatraz as his, his Harvard, if you will, his alma mater. And he always you know, waxed poetic about the, the good old days of living on the rock. And when he got into the federal prison system as an older man, after his conviction, you know, uh, he's a different person because he's not the intimidating person that he once was. And uh, other inmates, Took a, took a run at him. We have a exclusively uh, detailed in the book an assassination attempt on Whitey Bulger in Tucson, Arizona, before he ever got to Misery Mountain. And we had the uh, um, great fortune of having access to 70 letters that Whitey Bulger had written in his own hand about how he was being treated 
in prison. And ultimately, you know, Bulger was a, was, was a bad prisoner. And I mean that by saying that he, complain, he complained about everything. And the guards uh, certainly didn't like that. So they moved him around like a chess piece on a board before ultimately they put him in a place where they must have known he wouldn't last long. And Dave can pick up that part of the story. Yeah, so what, uh, Grace, Whitey was brought into the prison um, under the cover of night. And when he was put in there, he was put in there with several organized crime figures, including members of the Italian mafia from Massachusetts, some from Boston and some from Springfield. One of those guys from uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, was a guy named Freddie Gius. Freddie was an enforcer for the mafia in uh, Springfield. And uh, he's actually Greek, but uh, he, was, he worked as one of their uh, main um, sources of muscle. And he was serving life in prison for the murder of the Springfield mob capo, a guy named Adolfo Bruno, Big Al was his name. And, um, you know, Freddie Gius was, was a, a, a real gangster, a noble gangster, if there is such a thing, uh, who lived by the code, unlike Whitey Bulger, who was a rat. And a guy like Freddie Gius doesn't like people like Whitey Bulger that were rats, especially ones that ratted on the Italian mafia. So when Bulger walked into that prison, he was literally walking into the lion's den and he did not last long. He was only there for 12 hours. He never even got out of bed the next morning. When the gates opened for breakfast, the two killers went in and they beat him to death with uh, padlocks that were in socks. And that was it. And uh, uh, DeCollegero and Freddie Gius, uh, have not been charged with that murder, but they've been implicated in it, and they're both, to this day, uh, sitting in solitary confinement, you know, as an investigation continues in, into Bulger's 2018 murder. So, you know, the information we got while researching this book is that that investigation is still going on, that there is a prosecution that will happen at some point, but uh, we're still awaiting that. Right, that's very interesting. That is all the questions I have for you. Do either of you have anything else that we didn't get to that you'd want to talk about or anything to add? Uh, sure. This is Casey. Um, Grace, I think what differentiates Hunting Whitey from all of the other uh, books and films that were, uh, you know, that chronicle Whitey Bulger's life, they bring the story up to a point and we, uh, you know, really wanted to focus on that final chapter of this notorious gangster's life. What was his life like on the run? Well, you know, his letters and uh, the FBI agents that we interviewed, you know, give us all of the details that have never been emerged or, or known before. What was his life uh, like in prison? You know, we um, uh, have exclusive interviews with not only the guards that guarded Whitey Bulger, but his fellow prisoners as well. So it's, a, it's an exclusive insight into the life of a criminal that uh, really hasn't been told before. And we're very excited uh, about the response that we've had thus far. Absolutely, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and I'm, I would urge anybody who's interested in organized crime or the story of Whitey to read it because it's a very, like you said, deep dive into that very end chapter of his life and his time as a fugitive. So thank you, Casey and Dave, so much for joining me today. This was a really insightful look into Whitey's life and his time as a fugitive and all of the things that kind of were not told before, um, or at least I didn't know before I read your book. So thank you so much for joining me today. We appreciate it. Thanks. And thanks for having us. So that is all for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you, Dave Wedge and Casey Sherman, for sitting down with me to discuss this incredible story. 
If you'd like to hear more about Whitey Bulger's life and crimes, check out the book Hunting Whitey. If you liked this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating and leaving a review on your favorite streaming platform. It does so, so much to help get the show out there to more listeners. Again, I'm Grace Lynn Keller, and this has been Grace's On the Case. Thanks so much for listening. Music